Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch. The Dog Watch is an evening shift of early or late duty, or the people who undertake it. This Dog Watch considers the natural world and the things that help us experience it, from dogs to watches and everything in between. Ultimately, it's a place for us to go wherever curiosity takes us. Most listeners of this podcast will be familiar with the epic adventure of Ernest Shackleton and the crew of the Endurance. However, the Endurance does not have a monopoly on being stuck in Antarctic ice, nor does it have precedence. Before the Endurance, Belgian captain Adrien de Gerlache took the ship Belgica on a southward expedition with hopes of reaching the South Magnetic Pole. On the Dog Watch today, we are fortunate to be joined by Julian Sancton, who recently wrote Madhouse at the End of the Earth, a best-selling book that the New York Times calls exquisitely researched and deeply engrossing, in which he tells the incredible tale of the Be- Belgica, how it became lodged in Antarctic ice, and how its crew, much to their detriment, became the first to endure the dark Antarctic winter. In our conversation, we get to know Julian's background in journalism and writing, how he came to tell the tale of the Belgica, and learn more about the characters in the book, including Roald Amundsen, who became one of the most prominent explorers of all time. If that's not enough, I would think that starting the tale in Leavenworth Penitentiary will pique the interest of most Dog Watch listeners. Without any further ado, let's get on to the conversation with Julian Sankton. Julian, thanks so much for joining us today on the Dog Watch. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, like some of our listeners, I'm sure, I became familiar with you through your book, Madhouse at the End of the Earth, the Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night. After reading it, I, I could sort of easily understand why it's a bestseller. And I started wondering how the book came to be and why you decided to write it. However, I, I learned a little bit more about you recently and, and found uh, that your literary and travel profile is, is pretty extensive. Uh, you w- wrote for Departures Magazine, and your bio at Crown says you've written for Vanity Fair, Esquire, The New Yorker, Wired, among other places, and reported from every continent, including Antarctica. So I, I thought I would start the conversation, or I had thought I'd start the conversation with sort of background on the Madhouse book, um, but I realized that I'd like to start a little bit further back. Can you help us understand how you got started as a writer and journalist and, and what that path has been like for you? Sure. I mean, my uh, my grandfather was a journalist. My father was a journalist. Uh, they're both named Thomas Sancton. Um, and they've, you know, growing up, it seemed not as if I was forced into it, but that that, that is what a man does is... Uh, is uh, is right. I mean, they were both they were both uh, journalists and authors, and so um, you know, conversations around the table uh, were were pretty entertaining. When you have storytellers for for relatives, and um, you know, I, I I was always it was always made clear to me that that this was a, a skill worth nurturing, um, and and, uh, and my I was always rewarded for a good turn of phrase, and so. Um, when I got to college, you know, I was already on a humanities, uh, on a humanities track. And, um, I took, I just took pleasure in writing. I didn't think that I would become a writer, but it was always, uh, you know, in no matter what, uh, you choose to do for a living, being able to be a writer is always, uh, valuable. So I, I, I took pride in that. Um, I thought I would be an, an animator. That was my, my uh, ambition uh, coming out of college is to 
to uh, make cartoons for a living. And then when I, I uh, tried doing that and realized that I you know, wasn't uh, nearly as good at it as I thought I, I, I was, um, I moved to New York and, uh, you know, found a, a after uh, searching for a long time, found a job as a um, research assistant for Vanity Fair magazine. And uh, in that capacity, that was really my, my, my true education as a writer. No matter how many English classes you take, uh, you, you learn more by doing and by, and by taking notes from the copy department and, uh, and learning from the editors there who have been, you know, uh, applying their trade for decades uh, than, you, than you will in any academic context. So I, uh, I learned there. I also learned by, by um, assisting some, some pretty illustrious uh, writers at, at Vanity Fair, including Christopher Hitchens and uh, Maureen Orth and Marie Brenner and um, James Walcott and a lot of these these people whose writing I admired. Uh, I just learned by observing. Um, and then, you know, I I, I continued. Um, I got to know a lot of people in the magazine business, and and they assigned features to me, and uh, I, I just freelanced uh, everywhere I could. Yeah, and so when you said you sort of help these writers that you learn from, et cetera, what does that mean to help a, a writer who's doing stuff on a, on an article, and and how did you sort of participate? Oh, I wouldn't say that I gave them notes on their writing. Uh, I helped them re research their articles. So if if Christopher Hitchens was writing something about the founding fathers, for example, um, I would uh, gather everything I could through through a, you know uh, sources in. Um, in the media and, and through historical research and just put together a little packet for him. Um, when, when Maureen Orth was research doing investigative, um, uh, you know, doing investigation on, on Michael Jackson following his arrest in 2003, I, um, I helped her with that. So, um, and, and scoured the local press and, and, uh, you know, legal records and, and helped there. But then, you know, when you're when you're working on the on the store as a research assistant, you're also helping their editor, um, you know, polish the writing on the other end when the when the story comes in. And so, just having that that uh, fly on the wall uh, perspective on these on these stories uh, was was really uh, quite an education. Yeah, I can imagine. One of the things that we're going to be sort of delving into with your book. Um, on the Belgica is this question of travel. And it seems like travel is, is part of what you've written about and experienced. So I'm curious, um, you know, obviously if you traveled widely, has that been mostly been for work or for writing or for adventure travel or personal travel? Kind of what, what's your travel profile like? Well, I grew up um, largely in Europe. My mother's French and uh, my father was a, uh, a bureau chief for Time Magazine in Paris. Um, and in that capacity he was traveling all over the all over the continent because he covered that western europe but also when you're in europe it's very easy to you know hop on a train or uh, or get in a car or hop on a plane and, and go to you know go to spain or, or italy or germany or or england you know and and uh so we did that a lot we did a lot of traveling uh in europe and obviously back and forth to the united states where i had family as well but then uh, a lot of my travel after that was for uh, for work. And uh, I did a significant amount of traveling before working for Departures, but then Departures being, uh, you know, travel being so central to what Departures was all about. Um, I, I, that was really where my, uh, where, where my traveling took off, so to speak. Uh, so that, that took me all around the world. 
I'm curious about your travel and, and what it would be like to travel with Julian Sancton, right? Like, is it adventure travel, luxury, sort of excesses of cultural and artistic exploration? Like, what in your best case scenario, right, when you're not tasked with travel, um, how, how do you like to travel? What, what, is, what is it like for you? Um, there's the romantic notion, which I don't always live up to, but, but when it works is, is, uh, what I find most rewarding is when you have a destination in mind and you maybe reserve the first night, uh, just so you have some place to, you know, to, uh, flop down. And, uh, but then you, you leave the rest up to, uh, up to chance and, 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 and you leave yourself open to discovery. That doesn't always, that, that's how I, I used to travel with my parents and sometimes you have wonderful surprises. Um, and some, but, but, uh, frequently now that I have a family, I, I don't do that quite as often. I, I basically reserve every night and then maybe leave, leave much less room for improvisation, but, but enough that, that. You know, not everything is choreographed, but you know, I I at least know where I'm sleeping every night and usually where I'm eating. Uh, but I that that is not my that's not my ideal. It's just practical. Uh, when I'm traveling for uh, when I'm traveling for for work, then I do book a hotel. But you when you're reporting on something, you don't know what you don't even know what you don't know. To to paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, so uh, you you sort of. Um, you sort of know that one encounter is going to lead to another, uh, and that uh, you want you, you, that that the recommendations are going to come once you're on the ground, and 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 you know you you should be open to the unexpected, and and that that's why you know that's as relaxing as it is to travel with your family uh, and to travel in that in that very regimented way. I I I almost uh, I, I hope my wife doesn't hear this interview, but I almost prefer to travel for work. Um, you know, as, as enjoyable as it is to, to travel with my loved ones. Right. It's different. Um, for sure. The aims are different and the flexibility is obviously different. So, um, last kind of question on that. I'm curious, you've obviously been in lots of places and are there any places right now that you look to, especially if you could go on your own or whatever that you really feel like, Hey, I'd love to, I'd love to get there and I'd love to spend some time just um, exploring a particular region or country or place, anything on the horizon for you that you, whether you can get there or not, that you've, you're eyeing? Well, I'm planning on, on traveling to Colombia for a, a, an upcoming project, um, which I am very much looking forward to. Um, but, you know, one place that I've spent uh, too little time in, but would love to explore again is Japan. I went there for uh, departures in 2016 and had a very lost in translation experience where, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anybody on the ground. I had some guides. Um, and, but, but, uh, I feel like I was just starting to scratch the surface, uh, when it was time to come back, I spent two weeks there and it was, it was, it was starting to burrow in me. And I feel like, you know the the uh, cliches about Japan. I don't know if they're true, but there's, they were they certainly uh, matched my experience about it being a hard country to 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 penetrate uh, as a uh, as an outsider. And so, but then I I, I got just enough of a uh, a peek into it that it it, it wed my appetite to go back. So I would definitely want to go back to Japan and spend a lot of time there. Yeah, I can I can understand. It's something I've been looking at. Actually, we had a um, guest on the podcast, Bjorn Bjorn. Home, who uh, who's a bonsai professional, studied in Japan for a long time. Uh -huh. Now he's in the U.S., kind of one of the leading bonsai people. Um, and then I'm also really interested in Japanese gardens and just that that aesthetic is uh, from a natural perspective, kind of how they've 
uh, approach the natural world in in what they have right in a fairly crowded country etc is, is super interesting so i can i get it i uh, someday you know it seems like a really great place yeah to and in a lot of fields you mentioned bonsai yeah sorry sorry to interrupt me yeah, yeah. in a lot of you mentioned bonsai but i feel that 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 uh you know attention to detail in a lot of other fields and and that's sort of that that different way of arriving at at, at things um and that that just um you know whether it's jazz or you know comic books or novels or painting or or um watches you know food <laughs> uh, watches yeah exactly um yeah. i'm sure james cox told you about his uh his experience in in Japan, um, but no, I, I I would love to uh, I would love to to experience that on multiple yeah. fronts. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I wanted to turn to Madhouse and and your recent book, obviously a big success. Um, and I'm curious, given your background, how you settled on this particular story to tell. It has a lot to do with my uh, my love of movies, of adventure. Uh, well, films and films and books about adventure, but you know, growing up, I loved Indiana Jones. Um, I loved Star Wars, and you know, what boy, what boy didn't, I guess. But um, but those are, it, but but that's not to say that I had any particular fascination for polar travel. You know, more than anything else, um, I was I'd been looking for a book to write from pretty much the moment I I started uh working as a writer and i would say even before that i always had this fantasy as i mentioned my family um or my my, my uh, on my dad's side uh, i'm a third generation writer um so um I, I had this notion almost the sense that it was inevitable that i would write a book i just uh never found my topic and i started to lose hope um until 2015 when i was at departures magazine and i was sitting at my desk reading the New Yorker magazine I've always loved. And I chanced on an article by a great writer named Tom Kizia, who had written about NASA's plans to prepare astronauts or to study the effects of long-term confinement and isolation in extreme environments in preparation for manned missions, manned missions to Mars. And in that article, uh, which, which, I think the, the meat of the article focused on an, uh, on a sort of a biodome or kind of like, you know, a, an isolation experiment on uh, Mauna Loa in, in Hawaii and, uh, you know, which, which, which had similar conditions to, or to, uh, or similar enough, I guess, uh, conditions to, to the, to the red planet in order to study uh, the, the, the effects of, or, or what it would be like to live in uh, for, for a, uh, you know, astronauts to, to, to live in that kind of environment for a long time in isolation. But the article began in, in really unexpected fashion. Uh, classic New Yorker, they kind of back into the story. Um, and um, it began with a short summary of the Belgica expedition, which uh, was a an Antarctic expedition in, the, in 1898 at a time when the Antarctic was all but unknown. There had been Maybe a few, you know, a few fragmentary coastlines uh, on on maps, but but mostly the the the, the bottom of world maps was a, was a void. And in 1898, the Belgian sailor and, and aristocrat Adrien de Gerlache took uh, took it upon himself to uh, lead a mission to 
Antarctica, the first scientific mission to Antarctica. Um, and, and yes, it is unexpected that a Belgian, uh, you know, a, a Belgian of all people, would be um, the the one to lead such a groundbreaking mission. But there you have it. And um, he it, and in those few paragraphs in that New Yorker story, I, I became. I became transfixed. There was there was a mention of the ship being caught in the ice. There was the mention of the men going, uh, or many of the men going insane uh, due to you know forces, some of which could be explained, like confinement and you know isolation and monotony and fear. But some, but it also seemed to confirm this notion that was uh, this almost gothic notion. That, w- that had become a, a trope in 19th century literature that the, the you know the extremes of the earth are, are inherently maddening that there is this almost malevolent force that uh, emanating from the you know topmost and bottommost latitudes of earth that that uh, that drive men mad and so that, the fact that this this expedition which really happened seemed to confirm that uh, I found it it was almost like something out of Edgar Allan Poe and it was um, y- you know the, there's there's the endurance aspect of all these ex- of these extreme polar expeditions you know that, that how, you know how far can you push you know human endurance and there's the survival story but there's also this deeper layer of character and of uh, the, the psychology of it uh, that that fascinated me and then you know the cherry on the cake was that there, there was the presence of these larger-than-life characters, including uh, Roald Amundsen, who was the uh, Norwegian explorer who later on would uh, uh, would reach the South Pole, would be the first man to reach the South Pole. And then there was his counterpart, in uh, in some sense, the American doctor Frederick Cook, who would later become infamous for. Uh, lying about becoming the first man to reach the North Pole, and among other fabrications. And yet, uh, it seemed that the doctor, uh, at least in the case of the Belgica, was a genuine hero. And so the idea of the uh, the hero, the, the uh, heroic anti-hero, was something that, you know, to, recalled Han Solo, or Indiana Jones, <laughs> or Butch Cassidy, or yeah. Sherlock Holmes, and all these heroes that I had as a child. You know, the, in those three, four paragraphs, I was... I was absolutely mesmerized, and and I I thought, well, you know, maybe this is, uh, maybe this this could be a book. And I realized that, you know, I f- actually at first I thought it was a movie, and I called my friend who's a screenwriter and told him about this, and he goes, well, you know, in Hollywood these days, it's all about intellectual property. If there isn't a book that we can adapt, then we're not going to do it. Um, and so that that got me even more interested to see if there was, and and it, it unbelievably there wasn't. And so I uh, I decided to write it. I'm I'm curious, you know, you've kind of laid out some of the aspects of the Belgica's voyage, et cetera. I want to see how we can frame it for our listeners, sort of the context. What are some of the fundamental ways that the world was different when the Belgica headed south in sort of terms of overall understanding, but especially unanswered scientific questions and exploration goals? Like what was the... What was the place and time that the Belgica was living in when de Gerlache and these other characters headed south? Well, a lot of the 19th century, um, throughout the 19th century, the, the exploration started to take a more scientific flavor. Uh, you know, that whereas before it, uh, exploration had been driven largely by commerce or, or uh, you know, for sometimes military reasons, uh, in, in the 19th century, you know, having having conquered much of the known world, then you know, Euro- European and Western uh, explorers decided that they would endeavor to understand it. Uh, so, sure, there was still exploration driven by the sense by by conquest and 
and uh, greed. For example, you know, uh, the exploration of, of Central Africa and, and of the Congo, for example, with uh, with Leopold II and another another Belgian endeavor that was far less noble. But but science was a a great driver of exploration. Whether whether it is what motivated the explorers themselves is not certain. You know, I think they were also driven by by a dream of glory and an adventure, but it was frequently a justification for exploration. Now to answer your question, what was the the state of uh, of understanding? I mean, I can't I can't give you a sweeping answer about the about the world. There were so many different facets that were being studied, but um, about Antarctica, uh, very, very little was known. There, there hadn't been uh, a single survey of Antarctic species or of, uh, or, or whether locally or, or uh, you know, certainly not continent-wide. There, there was very little understanding of the meteorology. Uh, there had no, no expedition had spent more than a few hours on land. Certainly, no, nobody had ever spent a winter or a full year on, on the, uh, in the Antarctic continent or in the, in the Antarctic region. One theory that needed to be confirmed, or that, that was one of the goals of the Antarctic, of the Belgica scientists to confirm, was whether the mountain range on the, uh, on the Antarctic, that begins with the Antarctic Peninsula and becomes the Antarctic Andes, as they're called, um, that, that lead deeper into the continent, whether those were a uh, separate uh, mountain range or whether they were a continuation of the Andes. There was also little sense of, of the, the, what the topography of the seafloor was. Yeah. So those are all uh, questions that... Oh, and, and, and most importantly, I guess, is uh, that... And this was one of the main goals of the Belgica expedition, was the pinpointing of the South Magnetic Pole, which is distinct from the South Pole in the sense that we think of it, which is the geographic South Pole, you know, the point... Uh, from which all directions are north, the very bottom of the, the precise meeting of all the of, of all the meridians. The magnetic south pole is the center of magnetic activity uh, in, in the south, and it is it's close, but but far enough that um, it's the it's the point where all compasses point, and so it is a moving target because it depends on the churn of magma in the Earth's core. Um, and at that point, it was thought to lie on the other side of Antarctica from the Antarctic Peninsula, which is where de Jarlage wanted to do most of his exploration. And so he planned these two, and I would argue, incompatible goals, which is to spend a lot of time thoroughly investigating the Antarctic Peninsula and uh, documenting its flora, fauna, geology, meteorology, oceanography, um, and then race all the way to the other side of the continent and and dash make a dash for the uh, magnetic south pole and um he was never able to square that circle so uh you know by the time he was done uh you know uh, after many delays had gotten to the antarctic and and uh, was and his scientists were were uh, felt that they had studied the the 800 mile stretch of the Antarctic Peninsula thoroughly enough. By the time he started making his way to the other uh, the other side of the planet, the uh, winter ice was starting to form, and uh, eventually uh, he realized that he would never be able to to uh, make it past this perimeter of ice, and that that uh, w one of the main goals of the mission uh, would would have to be abandoned. And so that is when he was faced with a choice. Do I come home empty-handed, or do I try to make another, or do I do, attempt another exploit? 
and um, that is when he decided to, uh, during a storm that broke up the, the pack ice and opened a, a number of avenues that pointed south, even though he understood or thought he understood the dangers that, that it would represent, he ordered the uh, helmsman to steer the ship south relentlessly south in the attempt to sail deeply into the unknown, possibly reach a southern uh, a record, possibly, uh, and, and failing that, he knew that at the very least there would be a story to tell, an adventure to recount, uh, that he and his men would be the first to endure the cruelties of an Antarctic winter. Right. And as far as that goes, they were successful in that, the, that final account, at least most of them who, sure. didn't, who didn't perish. Um, and I think you know, framed this question, or I think in the book, when you describe, you know, Dejerlash effectively looking south and saying, oh, we, you know, should we make a break for it um, at this one point yeah. after they've come down there after lots of delays, et cetera, and they, they end up doing that and get stuck in the ice. And again, I one of the things that I hope to do is, is um, entice people with this story and get them to read the book because I think that's that's what really tells this in a, in a way that's compelling and riveting and, and really helps you understand kind of what these people were, were up to and who they were. I'm curious sort of how you would frame the, the three main characters. You've talked a little bit about them, but their roles that they played. You've got Dejerlash, you've got Dr. Cook, and you've got Roald Amundsen. So how would you briefly describe their roles in this expedition and kind of how they play how they played off each other? Dejerlash was the driving force behind this expedition. You know, no matter his uh, questionable decisions later on, this would not have happened if not for his vision, if not for his his ambition and his his demented notion that 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 this was something that was doable. He was very ambitious, but he was a dreamer at heart. His he came from an aristocratic family, as I mentioned, uh, a military family that, uh, and he was expected to have followed in that line and uh, yet he was just a, he was a dreamer he was a guy who was fascinated with the ocean which is a strange fascination in belgium which did not have much of a coastline or maritime tradition um, and yet he, he he was miserable on land he from a very young age he would uh, sign on to uh, transatlantic ocean liners as a as a crew member and and uh, just rose through the ranks to become the the the, the very meager ranks of, of Belgium's <laughs> uh, maritime establishment to uh, become one of the most promising naval prospects in in the country. And so the king Leopold II had once offered to him the uh, opportunity to make his fortune in the Congo by by charting the uh, the river system in uh, in the the. the colony that Leopold basically claimed as his own personal property. But uh, Dejerlash, whether for, for moral reasons, uh, it's, un, it's, un, it's unclear whether he, he objected to the experiment or whether he was just not interested in, in uh, freshwater navigation, but he, was, he, he, he turned down the king's offer, um, and which was seen as quite a bold move. Uh, but he had, he had it in his mind that he would explore the bottommost part of Earth and, fill the, and help fill that void and the bottom of world maps. However, he was a, as accomplished a sailor as he was. He was not a natural leader of men. He was a, he was uh, somewhat uh, non-confrontational, timid, um, not particularly gregarious, and he had trouble. That this this caused no shortage of, of problems on the journey down, when he was uh, unable to keep 
many of his crew members in line and, and uh, faced a, uh, a, a rebellion that turned very close to a mutiny uh, when a lot of the, the Belgian sailors realized that they could walk all over him. One of the reasons is because he had sold this expedition to the Belgian public and to the, the government as a, as a nationalistic or rather, I should say, patriotic endeavor that would fly the, the flag of the relatively new country of Belgium all around the, uh, the world on the way down to, to Antarctica. However, there were not very many qualified Belgian sailors, so the ones that he was able to, uh, to bring on board knew that they had power over him. If it had become known that uh, he kicked out uh, so many Belgian sailors that there were, that there were more non-Belgians on the expedition than Belgians, then... Um, they realized that that could really hurt him and his reputation. Um, so that was one of the reasons he was hamstrung. But uh, another is just that naturally he was not the leader of men that, say, uh, Amundsen turned out to be later in life. Right. Um, and so, you know, you asked me about Amundsen. He was somebody who was much more naturally inclined to, or, or rather naturally suited to uh, extreme adventure than, than de Gerlache. He, from a very young age, trained himself to become... Uh, exactly what he did become, which was the greatest polar explorer who ever lived. He would sleep in Oslo with a window open throughout the winter to inure himself to the cold. Uh, he would trek across barren ice capes in uh, the, the north of the country uh, just because they were a, a convincing facsimile of the of uh, Arctic and Antarctic uh, uh, landscapes. He's, for him, the Belgica was, was training, and so the, wor the more he suffered, the happier he was. He was a bit of a masochist in that sense. The, the more he thought he was getting out of the experience. And so um, the, the deprivations and the uh, cruelties of, of this expedition for him uh, were, were, if anything, invigorating. Yeah. And then you have uh, Dr. Cook, who on his way... He grew up. He grew up in uh, New York State, and then later, uh, you know, he hustled his uh, his way <laughs> to through medical school uh, in Brooklyn, in, in Manhattan, and he, he, you know, he was just a a real up from the bootstraps, uh, self made uh, American huckster, um, and just a, a fascinating character. He was within spitting distance of the American dream when he was about to get his medical degree. Having grown up in poverty, he was about to get his medical degree, and uh, his wife was about to give birth to his first child, and um, all of a sudden that dream was shattered when his wife died in childbirth, and the and the the, the child didn't survive. So he was left with a uh, just just the, the shards of this of this dream, and and wanted to escape as far as possible. So he answered an ad in the paper, uh, a. a uh, an American polar explorer named Robert Perry was looking for a, a, a surgeon to accompany him to the northernmost um, uh, latitudes of Greenland. And so he, he uh, answered the ad and, and became a member of this expedition and then became, he caught the polar bug. And then for, for the next six, seven years, tried to assemble his own expedition. And he, he like Dujarlaj, wanted to be the first to lead the first, the, the, to, to lead a scientific expedition to Antarctica, but he was never able to raise the funds. And so he ended up, you know, if you can't beat him, join him. He ended up joining 
uh, Dujerlash's expedition, and, be, and, uh, and thank God he did, because yep. it was a last-minute addition. Dujerlash did not want to add another foreigner to the, uh, to the crew and, and subject himself to accusations that the Belgian expedition was not Belgian. Um, and, but, but he, he ended up joining and, and, uh, his interventions ended up being, uh, as, uh, as ingenious as they were life-saving. Yeah. We'll come back to him in, in just a few minutes. Cause I, I think he's a fascinating character uh, and part uh, of the, um, of the expedition. So this podcast is, um, you know, sort of have explained focuses on the natural world and the things that help us experience it fundamentally. So certainly the stories of exploration and adventure that have come before, are a central aspect of this. And um, kind of wondering, aside from the dramatic aspects of abject suffering and death <laughs> that go along with especially the sort mm-hmm. of polar exploration, there also re- seem to be really helpful and I, in considering leadership and how groups of people can either function to get together or tear themselves asunder um, in difficult circumstances. So I'm curious amidst some of these other stories of, of Arctic and polar exploration, you know, William Barents, Ernest Shackleton, for example, where, what do you see as some of the lessons or takeaways from the voyage of, of the Belgica? There were, there are a few. Uh, one is uh, the importance of, of psychological screening for these, <laughs> True. these expeditions. Uh, they, it was, this was not done in the case of, uh, in the case of Dijerlash. And actually it was, it would be a while before that would become common practice. But, um, they, uh, the, the member, the crew members that he was able to, uh, scrounge together were not the cream of the crop necessarily. I mean, they were, some of them were very good sailors, uh, but they, there was no sense of, of whether they were adaptable to such extreme environments. And so, you know, so even though some of them had even spent time in, in uh, fishing in the, uh, in the Arctic waters, just because they hadn't experienced the cold doesn't mean that they were well-suited to long-term confinement or that they were mentally stable enough to withstand a lot of the other pressures that they would. And so that is one lesson uh, that that in retrospect, a lot of people, you know, Admiral Byrd would later on uh, in his expedition to to the Antarctic bring two straight jackets, you know, or, uh, to, because he knew that, that the, the likelihood that oh. that uh, that at least two members of his crew would would go uh, insane. So that is, that's one lesson. Cook uh, actually drew a lot of uh, observations that that would inspire NASA, which was which was one of the reasons that that, that New Yorker article began with it in its. Um, recommendations for missions to to space is one thing he did is he took regular surveys of the the entire crew and that gave him a sense at any given moment of the mental state of of his shipmates and he was able to adapt accordingly but he but it more more importantly it also made them them uh each man both officer and and uh you know from the from from to the lowliest deckhand feel that they were being paid attention to and that their, that their, uh, fears and desires and, and feelings, uh, mattered and uh, that, that made them feel less isolated. And, uh, it also made Cook the most popular man aboard. Um, but, but it, it, it instilled a sense of solidarity, I think, throughout the ship. And that, that is a practice that has been definitely adapted in, in, in other polar explore, expeditions and, and also, um, in, uh, in successful, uh, missions to, 
to space and in other extreme environments. Another lesson drawn is the importance of, of a varied diet and not just a, a, in terms of nutrition, but also in terms of texture and, and even color and, and the scent and anything to break the monotony. Because when, when you think that all, they were, they were complaining, even though their, you know, their, their canned food was, was uh, high quality by the standards of the day, it didn't lead to any botulism or any of this kind of stuff that you hear. And, you know, frequently that this polar expeditions were all compromised by tainted canned food. It's not necessarily that, but there was a lack of vitamin C, that's for sure. The, the, the bigger factor that the men suffered from was a lack of variety. And as strange as it may seem that they were complaining about, you know, wanting to have crunchier food or wanting to have more distinguishable food, even though it was perfectly palatable, they, they it became a real problem because uh, they grew disgusted, weary. Um, and, and the one moment that is supposed to be a moment of communion and of celebration and of, of, of conviviality, which was mealtimes, became a source of dread. And that is, the, psychologically, is, is more devastating than it is even, even physiologically. And so uh, Cook understood this, and, and that became also, uh, has now become common practices to make sure that uh, there is at least a certain amount of, of, uh, of variability and, and uh in uh, in meals, uh, there's there's plenty of others. Where those are the three that come up to you know off the top of my head. Yeah, and it's interesting. Thank you for sharing those because you know as we think about these different expeditions, often I would say the most sort of visible one right now, especially after the discovery of the the endurance itself, is the endurance. But it's tempting to sort mm-hmm. of look at Shackleton and say, oh my gosh, he was a genius and he you know was had this these leadership characteristics. But there were antecedents, right? Things that came before and people like. Cook and De Gerlache, right, to learn from. And I, I'm, I don't know, but um, clearly some of the later explorers and now even people looking to go to Mars look back to these things and ask what was learned. Mm-hmm. So it seems like they're important that way. So, um, oh, sure. And, and, and you, know that, you know that Shackleton read all the accounts of, uh, of the Belgica. He was friends with De Gerlache. Oh, okay. Um, and he, um, he, I don't think he ever uh, interacted, uh, he never met Cook, but he, he, uh, uh, it's it's uh, highly likely that he communicated with him, okay. um, and and uh, the the you know the, these polar explorers would would certainly have read each other's yeah. uh, uh, narratives and right. learned from them. Great. So uh, one quick thing: one of the things we don't often see in a book like this is all the research that the author does, getting into primary accounts, et cetera, and journals, et cetera. How was that for you, you know, just in, in the broadest sense? And were there any things that you like looking at a journal or looking at a letter, any particular ones that stand out as like a really um, moving moment? The, the, the most moving moment of that kind was when I visited with the descendants of oh. de Gerlache. I met his great grandson, Henri de Gerlache, who's a filmmaker um, in Belgium and his grandsons, actually. So his Oh, uh, his father and and uh, uncle, whose uh, names are are Bernard and Jean Louis de Gerlache. All of them are adventurers. You know, they've gone on to you know sit on on many prominent boards in uh, in Belgium, but they've also uh, definitely you know proven their bona fides as as uh, as polar explorers. And uh, they invited me to their estate outside of Ghent in uh, in Belgium and. It looked like Captain Haddock's estate in in, uh, in Tintin. Uh, it was <laughs> wow. it was uh, just a, a a remarkable place, and there and they were such a gracious 
a bunch, and they pulled out the four logbooks that De Jolage took with him on on the Belgica. These thick, uh, looked like the you know, thick books filled with his jottings. Every single day, there's those jottings about wind speed and. Uh, temperature and uh, notable events. I leafed through every single page and took pictures of every page with my iPhone um, so that I could refer to them later uh, with Henri. So the, um, you know, all of my photos have his thumb on the, yeah. on the page as he turned and I, you know, I would turn as well, but, but he had never, he had never read through it. He had maybe glanced at it, but ch- just to, to be there with him as we read through this logbook, which even though it's written in a very sort of uh, dry, almost telegrammatic style, uh, contains many, many moments of poetry that you 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 know you realize you know for 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 every sentence there was uh, there was a whole story behind it, um, and so it was like reading an adventure book um, and, and t- together with him and and just seeing the you know the. The scratch marks, or the uh, the ink spills, or the other uh, indications of, of what he was experiencing at that time, and and we also know that Dijerlach suffered tremendously as the year uh, progressed, and and the the ship didn't break out of the ice. Sometimes the most telling thing was when there was nothing on a page, yeah, uh, and you realize that you know the the page is as barren as the uh, as the landscape beyond it, beyond the ship, and and uh, that was that was almost haunting when you realize that everybody on the ship thought that he was in his cabin filling out his log when in fact he was just sort of sitting there gazing out at emptiness. Right. Yeah. I find those things really moving myself and sounds like you got a chance to do that. Sounds fantastic to, to come cut, sort of drink from the source, so to speak as, as close as you can. Yeah. Uh, um, so I wanted to give listeners a, a couple of brief vignettes that um, you could read um, kind of uh, samples from the books. One um, has to do with sort of when they were, um, in the ice and it's sort of them they were sawing out with uh, with literally trying to saw themselves out of the ice and wonder if you might just read a paragraph there and and kind of contextualize it briefly i think you did a a pretty good job of contextualizing it i don't want to give too much away save to uh, to say that um cook uh had the uh the audacity to think that he could fight back against nature and what seemed to be an impossible task ended up being an attempt that rivaled the great escape. The, the men uh, believed that the coming of summer would end up liberating the ship, uh, that the ice would uh, around the ship would, uh, would thaw and break up and that the ship would, would make its way back to open water. Uh, as the months went on and the summer passed, that, that didn't happen. And um, the the men began to fear that they would be uh, condemned to spend at least another year in the ice. And uh, uh, they became resigned to the fact that not only would they spend a year there, but that, uh, they, that several of them would die. Well, Cook, as the, the doctor on board who'd been following uh, everybody's progress and, and physical and mental suffering insisted that most people would die and certainly the captain would die and, and, and very few people would survive if any if they were forced to spend another year uh, in the ice and so he insisted on the importance of breaking out of the ice which was you know a ludicrous notion you know when he proposed it the men actually laughed um that uh, that that somehow um, he, it would be possible to fight back against, uh, you know, nature's most powerful forces and the most extreme environment on earth. Um, and yet he, he insisted on doing it. And so this led to 
a uh, the, the men were at their weakest. They were suffering from scurvy, the, from uh, you know what he called polar anemia. They were most of them were bedridden, and uh, nevertheless, Dejerlash, uh, who was among the weakest of all of them, ended up seconding this plan and in, insisting on the the carving out of a canal for it through the ice over, you know, that, that would require the cutting of more than a mile's worth of ice uh, that was at least three three feet thick at its thinnest from the center of the flow that encased the uh, Belgica to the closest body of water. And so um, this required the, not only the carving of the banks of the canal, but the crisscrossing of the sections that uh, that made up the, uh, that, that would need to be cleared from uh, between those banks in order to free up the canal. And so uh, it, it was just a Herculean amount of work. And the more the men got into it, uh, actually, weirdly, the healthier they became and the, the, the more hopeful they became. And, all, you know, whether it was going to lead anywhere or not, uh, it gave them a sense of agency in their own fate. But, you know, one of the, the problems was that, you know, carve, you could carve out these sections of ice, but then moving them out was, was uh, you know, almost a, a mathematical problem because they would, you know, these blocks of ice would run in, would, were, were blocked in by other blocks and by the the banks of the canal so but cook came up with a devised an absolutely ingenious pattern which you'll have to buy the book to uh to see but um that allowed the these sections to break free and little by little uh it was putting explosives in strategic locations they were able to start freeing the canal so this is where we are in this um in this section the doctor's plan allowed the men to clear out the 700-meter canal at an astounding rate of about 60 meters a day. As the work progressed, the sections grew smaller and required fewer men to guide them to the clearing. Every once in a while, a sailor would have to jump onto a freshly cut fragment of ice and use a long pole to steer it into the clearing, like a gondolier. The trickiest part was leaping back into the main onto the main flow at the last second, or risk drifting away. Cook, who grew up rafting on the Delaware River, quote, excelled at this kind of sport, according to Le Quint, who was the Belgica's captain. The doctor would run from one side of the ice field to the other, mimicking his fellow officers and shouting orders to himself to keep the men amused. Quote, he often comes close to falling into the sea, Le Quint wrote, but with the agility of a monkey, always manages to catch himself in time. <laughs> that's, I think that's great. That's perfect. And um, I think that gives a really good sense of what was going on. And I, and the fact that this guy is jumping all over the ice, they're sawing things through. And then there's this big question, is it going to work? And I'll, we'll leave that to the, the readers reading it for themselves, it's not entirely clear where this all goes because the ice would the ice would refreeze. Yeah, well, the ice tends to do that. I, yeah. <laughs> and so as a last you know thing, I wanted to return to Cook. It's interesting, like he's one who I, I wasn't prepared to like him as much as I did and to see him as, as, as important, partly because of the way the book starts. So I wonder if you'd read from the introduction to the book, a scene where Cook is actually in Leavenworth Prison in Kansas, and Amundsen comes to visit him. And, and in this prologue, I haven't yet named Cook and Amundsen, so they're referred to as the Doctor and the Explorer, or I just, uh, I withhold their names, but um, it becomes clear to the assiduous reader that these are the people we're talking about. Um, Cook was there in Leavenworth serving time for um, a 
uh, stock manipulation scheme uh, involving shares in, in a, a defunct oil companies that he had combined to create some uh, in, in the hopes that that one of these these defunct oil wells would at some point strike a gusher, but in the meantime uh, he would he would rake in um, he would rake in money from gullible stockholders, and it ends up it ended up being something akin to a Ponzi scheme. Um, and uh, he was convicted of of among other things mail fraud, um, and in, in trumpeting the these these really you know junk shares and um and in fact uh, lev- leveraging his notoriety as a polar explorer uh and, and saying that you know I, as a scientist uh, i i'm I, I know that these wells will end up uh being productive and uh, it, they they certainly weren't by the time that uh, that the federal authorities started looking into these schemes so uh, he was sentenced to 14 years in jail which in prison which was uh, an, an extremely harsh sentence compared to other people who were doing similar things, but um, it, it, it's it's believed, and I argue that uh, his sentence was commensurate to his notoriety because he would al- he was already known as a fraud for having lied about reaching the North Pole and being the first to do so in 1909, um, and so you know having having hoodwinked the American public once, uh, he was he was punished for uh, for this. This later uh, endeavor to make himself remake himself as an oil man. So here, and then in the meantime, Amundsen had become the the legendary Roald Amundsen, who had not only uh, conquered the South Pole but also become the first to sail through the Northwest Passage, uh, reaching or, or sailing between the Atlantic and the Pacific um, through the Canadian Arctic. And so he was he was legendary, and he was planning another expedition. This one to the North Pole. In uh, 1926, when when uh, this takes place, and in uh, preparation for this for this uh, expedition, he was touring through the United States and uh, and came through the Midwest and in Kansas and decided that he would pay a visit to his old Belgica shipmate, um, who he who Amundsen considered the greatest explorer he'd ever known. So um, he he. he he had faith in in Cook when nobody else did, so uh, this was actually a, a very momentous uh, occasion for for Cook and and uh, and for both men. Actually, it was a, quite an emotional reunion. So let me read from this. In his half remembered youth, long before his fall from grace, the Doctor had been a celebrated polar explorer. His claim to have conquered the North Pole in 1908 had made him a national hero until it was suspected that he had falsified that feat, among several others. Quote, he will count for every, uh, he will count forever among the greatest impostors of the world, the New York Times would assert. That, and not the discovery of the North Pole, shall be his claim to immortality. In the afternoon, a guard informed him that he had a visitor. Since entering prison the previous year, the doctor had refused to see friends and family. The man waiting for him today was perhaps the only person alive for whom he was willing to make an exception. Rarely a day passed when the prisoner didn't think of his former comrade, a strapping 53-year-old Norwegian with whom he had served on a harrowing expedition to Antarctica nearly three decades earlier. Once the doctor's apprentice in polar matters, the Norwegian had gone on to become one of the greatest explorers the world had ever known, the legitimate conqueror of the South Pole. His headline-grabbing exploits and the apparent ease with which he had accomplished them had conferred upon him an almost mythic aura. 
An international lecture tour had taken him through the United States, and he had made it a point to pay his respects to his former mentor. It's amazing to think that that happened in Kansas, in this prison. <laughs> you know, that there's yeah. this, like, especially when you're sort of eventually reading the rest of the book and where where it's set, um, I just find it super moving. And, and it's, you know, as, as a last thing, like, I'm curious because you... As a journalist, you know, you write about all sorts of things. You write in The Hollywood Reporter, et cetera, about people, about these really interesting characters in our world. And I'm curious what you personally make of Frederick Cook. Um, because as I said, I, I came to this thinking, oh, this guy's going to be sort of the a bad guy or the antagonist in the book. And I ended up really finding a lot to appreciate about him, even though he was super flawed. So I'm curious for you, just really briefly, like, what, what do you make of, of Cook? Uh, I have to say I'm a little bit in love with him. Um, I, I, I found him attractive in the sense that all uh, all con men can be can yeah. be attractive, you know. Just the, these people who have this this sense that that, that they can uh, force their will upon the world and, and cheat when that doesn't happen. Uh, it's just it's it's attractive. It's just a, as a literary character, is, yeah. you know. Such people are are uh, irresistible in that sense. But I also really admire his his. Uh, his optimism and his, I, I think that his, his deceit was often um, just the other side of the coin from this delusional, I, I wouldn't even say delusional, just this, this extremely vast sense of the possible. And so that's admirable. I think that's a quality you want in, in, in any explorer. Um, and of course, when, when he wasn't able to, to uh, reach his goals, he sometimes, you know, uh, distorted the truth, but you know, I, his his life saving interventions were just uh, were were admirably ingenious. They were yeah. they were just they were so creative. And um, I later I, re I read a lot of his writings in prison and elsewhere. He wrote you know several unpublished memoirs in prison. And yes, part of it is exasperating when you know that he's lying, when you know that he's distorting the truth, and and you you see that in his purple prose, he's just completely lays it on thick. But uh, you know that underneath that is. Uh, a consummate dreamer who was always game for to to seek out what was beyond the horizon, um, even when he didn't reach the horizon <laughs> and he claimed to. Um, so you know, I I just I found him irresistible, and and I I I think that he's also a quintessentially American character. This this uh, you know I, there, there's another if if you don't mind my reading another no, passage absolutely. Um, I, there's there's another one that um, that I think encapsulates him. Uh, here we go. Cook is an exemplar of a quintessentially American spirit, which lies on the razor's edge between optimism and delusion, between audacity and deceit, imagination and flimflamery. This is the spirit that pulled him out of the abject poverty of his youth and imbued him with curiosity and ingenuity. It's the spirit that inspired him to prescribe groundbreaking treatments to his Belgica shipmates without any evidence that they would work, and to plot an unprecedented escape from the pack ice. It's also the spirit that convinced him he could reach the North Pole and the summit of Denali and strike it rich in Texas, and perhaps pushed him to bend the truth when he failed to reach those goals. So I think uh, if if uh, if you read affection and sympathy for Cook in those lines, then you're then I did my job because I definitely uh, feel that for him. Yeah. Well, I have to say I didn't see it coming when I read. You know, I thought that was a great start to the book, right? The prologue. You know, when when readers and listeners read this. 
it sets it up in a way that like it's kind of hard to imagine that you're gonna like Amundsen's obviously the hero, right? And like that's kind of where your mind goes. But in <laughs> in the end, you know, again, I in some ways I can't believe that I also too sort of have love for him. And as, after spending time with him on the ice, right, and having him try to come mm-hmm. up with these crazy solutions that had um, both the scurvy, right, eating the eating the seal meat, and and then just sawing through the ice, mm-hmm. like. Again, I don't want to give too much away, but I think that's a brilliant um, sort of aspect of the human experience that this book really um, asks us and allows us to think about. And I really appreciate that about it, along with all the other aspects of this voyage, et cetera, which which are great. So, yeah, and, and you know, it's it it's I definitely wanted to set up uh, Amundsen as as the hero at least at first, but I, I have to say, you know, I, the more I read about him, the the more I've I preferred. You know, Cook is more of a man after my style, and I say this. You know, it's it's somewhat self-deprecating thing to say, uh, but but uh, I like Amundsen was just such a force of nature, such a, an outlier in his uh, in his physical and mental fortitude that I don't even recognize myself in a man like that. I do yeah. in, in in someone like Cook. Yeah, uh, and so. Um, you know, I, that's, I'm, I'm glad you felt the same way. Yeah. I mean, the, the descriptions of, of Amundsen in where it was Norway in his practice sessions going up and, and, you know, basically freezing, getting frozen in and, and thinking that's to a sleeping bag. Right. And be like, okay, well, that's fine. Like I learned yeah. something from that. That's great. Like this was, this was, I mean, meanwhile, I would be like curled up in a ball <laughs> for months, right. Like trying to figure out how I could recover right. um, from that. So, yeah. I think, you know, Amundsen definitely psychologic and otherwise is uh, is a true outlier and that allowed him to do these things. But some of the other, even Desjardins, et cetera, like the, the characters here really make us ask, you know, how, how do they reflect our own existence and, and how we exist under these circumstances too, um, at least that did for me. So, Julian, I just wanted to thank you so much for, on behalf of me and, and the listeners, um, for sharing all this with us and allowing us to experience it um, in, in this way and bringing the story to light. So, and I really appreciate you joining us today on The Dog Watch. Absolutely, my pleasure. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. again to Julian for spending time with us today and helping us get to know him and the incredible story of the Belgica. Madhouse at the End of the Earth is a fascinating tale and is available wherever you find your books. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. Until our next shift, this is Michael Canfield thanking you for joining us on The Dog Watch. Dog Watch.